Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. I'm Jonathan Tanner and this week I'm talking to Dr. Claire Wardle. Claire is the US Director and Co-Founder of First Draft, a not-for-profit organisation tackling misinformation. This week we take a look at the difference between disinformation and misinformation, ask how the news gathering process is changing in newsrooms around the world, and look at what Claire calls the weaponization of context in contributing to problems in our information ecosystem. Claire, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on Government vs. the Robots. Thanks for inviting me. Before we get into some of the detail, I wanted to ask, uh, I presume it's probably one of the busiest moments of your career. Is that a fair assumption? <laughs> uh, I have to say, uh, yeah, life is uh, pretty. It's it's a it's a full on job, and it's a global story. So there's lots of time zone differences and everything else. But when the thing that you care about becomes a thing that the rest of the world really understands to be a problem, then you can't really ask for more than that when you really care about the subject. Which you kind of answered my other question, which is, are you finding the time to be satisfied by that, or is it all just passing by in a kind of crazy blur? I mean, I have to say that my alarm goes off goes off every day and I jump out of bed and I feel like I'm doing something. And then I have moments where I just I sort of suddenly really reflect on the state of the world. And then I really struggle and I realize that I'm throwing myself into work as a way of trying to cope. Um, so, yeah, I feel like any anything that I can do to hopefully make a difference means that it's worth doing. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty troubling right now. I think you're definitely not alone in feeling troubled. I, uh, I'm going to ask a question that I know you would have answered many times, but I think it'd be really useful to, to set the conversation. Can you just explain for me how you um, how you differentiate between misinformation and disinformation? Yep. Yeah, so disinformation is false information and the people who are creating and sharing it know it's false and are attempting to cause harm. Now, that is distinct from misinformation, which is also false or misleading information, but the people sharing it don't realize it's false. So the aim of a disinformation agent, to use that terrible phrase, is to push out something that they know is false, but the hope that people like you and I won't realize it's false. And we start sharing it with each other, being like, oh, my God, have you seen this? So the, there's the, that's why it's important to understand these distinctions, because if we're trying to tackle disinformation, that is a different set of interventions to trying to tackle misinformation. Uh, and you also talk about malinformation, is that right? Yeah, so I think the the purpose of trying to talk about language and definitions is this is a really, really complex space. And the reason that I worked with my um, co-author, Hossein Darakshan, on this was because everybody was using the term fake news. 
And I just recognized that it wasn't it wasn't a useful definition. It didn't uh, really grapple with the complexity. And also it was being used as a weapon against the free press, which we now see the repercussions today. But malinformation is genuine information, but the sharing of that genuine information is done to cause harm. So the classic example would be revenge porn, but it might be, for example, leaking a list of names from a cruise liner that people had coronavirus. It could be the leaking of emails. And sometimes that is done in the public interest, but there are other times when people's emails are leaked to cause harm and to do damage. So it's another way of thinking about this very broad ecosystem that it, we need to recognize the complexity and stop using very simple labels because that doesn't help when we're trying to talk about interventions. I always try and resist using the shorthand fake news and it's it's, it's irritating how easy a shorthand it became. But your uh, your your <laughs> definitions have helped reinforce my determination not to do it. I am... Um, I noticed in the paper you talk a bit about the need to recognise communication as ritual. And and you also, in, in your paper, it's a Council of Europe paper that I think underpins quite a lot of how maybe how First Draft came about, but maybe that's a different question. The paper talks about, it breaks down misinformation and disinformation into really detailed areas and you can understand the transmission and the creation and how to analyse it. But at the same time, it makes the point that communications isn't just about the transfer of information. It's a kind of ritualistic thing. Why did you feel that that was an important point to make? So those of us who study information, it's very tempting to kind of do content analysis of information and to talk about how it's transferred and how we make sense of it. But what I think we ignore is this idea that the newspaper that you choose to read or the URL that you choose to share on Facebook, there is an, a performative element to that because the positions that we hold on particular politicians or climate or vaccinations there's a performance to that because it's connected to our identity. And if we don't understand how that plays into the, the ways that misinformation circulates, then we're in trouble. But I think for, for many of us that are trained as researchers or journalists or fact checkers, it feels much safer to think about people having a rational relationship to information when we really need to understand this emotional and performative element to people's relationship to information. And that sounds like part of a kind of point that I often come back to when I'm talking to people who, who perhaps aren't as steeped in news as I often am on a day-to-day basis. And the, that's how much what news is, is informed by what humans are. And it, it feels like, you know, there's something about the component parts of news that are very much a kind of a mirror that's held up to what it is to be human. And that's about our strengths and our weaknesses. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a reason that news stories are called stories. Um, again, as humans, we tell stories to one another to reinforce our positions, to connect with other people who think similarly to us. And yes, there's a lot about um, news processes that it's important to understand around fact checking, you know, not using anonymous sources, et cetera, et cetera. But also it's about storytelling um, and it's about capturing people's attention and I think that when we think about news, I think we also have to understand that very effective newspapers understand the way that people have emotional relationships to information um, and how it reflects humans. But I, I, I think, again, researchers tend to see it as a kind of an atom of content that we can study and don't necessarily want to admit that it's there's, there's much more to it than that. I feel a little bit fatalistic at the moment about how uh, if news is about what human nature is and if the success of social media is almost kind of um, applying acupuncture-like pressure to those weaker parts of our human nature. I feel a bit fatalistic about our ability to um, to resist the, the temptation of divisiveness on social. Are you uh, Have you seen any recent grounds for optimism or should we move on quickly? <laughs> 
Uh, I'm not going to lie. These are dark times. But I think they're also dark times because we fail to really have the kind of conversation that you and I are having right now about our relationship to information. And I think if we talked more to one another about the way that we are susceptible to certain types of information, if it reinforces our positions and to say, you know, the, the reason that you choose that newspaper is it makes you feel good because it reinforces your prejudice. Let's think about that. And that doesn't mean that you should sit and read a newspaper that makes you feel uncomfortable every day. But can we talk about how information is produced? Uh, can we talk about how knowledge is created? I mean, I think one of the reasons that we're in the state we're in around the coronavirus is that I say this as an academic and researcher is that we've done a terrible job of explaining to the public how knowledge is created, how science works, how research works. And so as uh, you know, new information has emerged about coronavirus, we're like, what? You've been lying to us. You're now telling us that this is false. And so there's so much about this particular moment that I think is because we've done a terrible job up until now. My hope is when people say, are you depressed? I'm like, I have my moments. But I also wish that we could recognize that we're not going to get ourselves out of this moment in a year or two years. This is a 30 to 50 year project. Like This is really shifting how we respond to the Internet and the fact that you can find any information online, which means you can always find information that reinforces your worldview. We need to teach each other how to navigate in this new space. And instead, we've, we've just been like, oh, well, it's just like a quicker form of TV or a quick. So that's really interesting because the relationship between news consumption and identity, you're coming at that from an angle that I've reflected quite a lot on how much the media environment has fragmented in recent years. And at the same time, identity politics has kind of blossomed. Um, do you would you would you sort of subscribe to the idea that as we've become more fragmented in how we consume our media, um, we've also become more fragmented in how we express our identity. I mean, it's definitely complex, but I think what the internet has allowed everybody to do is to seek out information that reinforces their existing views. And that might be via the professional media, but if the professional media doesn't give people what they want, then they can find all sorts of other websites and communities online that make them feel that their viewpoints are the right viewpoints. So I think when we talk about, yes, we've had a fracturing of the media ecosystem, but we've also just have a, had a fracturing of the information ecosystem. And I think this idea that you, through one Google search, can find other people that tell you that you're right. Unfortunately, as humans, we're constantly seeking that reinforcement. And the Internet has allowed those communities to develop and has allowed people to find their tribes online. And so unfortunately, I think that has led to what we now see with identity politics being so important around everybody's individual day-to-day -day performance, essentially. And coming back to um, sort of news and misinform misinformation in particular, you use a phrase, I think, in um, your TED Talk about the, the weaponization of context. Um, can you explain to me why you think that the, the kind of shift around context is so important? Well, this, this comes mostly from doing this work so, you know, for the last 10 years and being frustrated that this conversation is about what's true or false when actually most of the content that we see is genuine, but it's used out of context because it's a much more effective way of persuading people or manipulating people, which is to have something that has that kernel of truth. So the weaponization of context was a way of trying to say to people, stop, you know, thinking that artificial intelligence systems or fact checkers can, you know, label stuff as true or false because the, the really pernicious stuff is the stuff that actually it, it, people take the context and they slightly tweak it. Because the other thing we have to recognise is that the platforms have really come down hard, not as hard as I would like to see, but they have really made strides in the last three years to tackle this. And so as they have written stronger policy guidelines or uh, policy positions, 
it means that if I'm a bad actor, I now have to work harder to ensure that I don't break those guidelines. And so what's an effective way of doing that? Well, just being really misleading or taking genuine content that wouldn't get picked up by AI systems, but using a statistic in a way that's misleading, like all of those tactics um, you see. So that's that's why I really made this case about the weaponization of context is if we see context as neutral, we're in trouble because that's actually one of the most effective ways to push problematic messages or narratives. So a, a practical example of this might be when a populist, a kind of far right populist politician starts quoting immigration figures um, that on the you know, on the surface level feel high, but actually you know, they're, they're, they're um, a conglomeration of 30 years worth of, of, of numbers or something like that. So the, the numbers themselves are accurate, but they're, they're, they're put in a completely different frame. Is that right? That's exactly right. And you know that you're kind of you're drawing on people's prejudices to not question the statistics, to not look harder. And you're doing that deliberately because, you know, in this age when people are scrolling as they stand in line for a coffee, well, that's the old days, but <laughs> you're scrolling quickly, you are less likely to do the to to be critical. And so it's it's much, much easier now to fool people. And people don't want to ask the hard questions because, as we just said, people want certain information to be true. And presumably, I mean, if, if we go back to sort of 10, 15 years, one of the primary jobs of journalists was to provide that context. Whereas, you know, one of the things that I think has been quite striking around the coronavirus is the ability of individuals to almost go straight to the source. So one of the reasons, to, to my mind, that there's been so much misinformation around is because people are able to kind of scratch beneath the surface so much more easily than they were 10, 15 years ago. And the role of journalists in kind of providing that initial context is is heavily under challenge. Is that something you'd recognise? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I also, you know, I think it's very easy to complain about Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. I think the way that journalists are now held to account by their audiences, either in the comment sections or on Twitter to say, no, hang on, um, can you explain that? Can you link back to the original data? You know, can you publish original transcripts? You know, there is now a way that journalists are pushed to have greater transparency, which I think is a good thing. Um, but the other thing is that, of course, people weaponize, they take segments of an interview, they take, they crop photos, they, you know, all the things. So unfortunately, the benefits that we've got from this space, we also see negative elements. For sure. And what can, you know, what can a smart journalist be doing at the moment to try and um, not only to protect themselves from the kind of the pile on online, but also to um, get ahead of people's ability to critique their work in that way? So it's about being as transparent as possible and showing your work on social media and the best journalists are doing that. Um, and it's also about being open to criticism. It's about answering questions when people have them. Uh, all of those things make a big difference. But I would argue, I mean, the harassment now towards journalists is, I mean, this is before we talk about what's happening on the US streets, but I mean, online harassment, particularly of female journalists and journalists of colour is horrific. And so my frustration sometimes is that we haven't seen more action on the part of the platforms to crack down on that type of harassment, um, I think is problematic because it's very difficult now to talk to younger journalists and to talk about their future when all they see is people harassing them online or, you know, shooting them on the streets, as we're seeing this week. And you've mentioned the platforms a couple of times or the, the kind of big social media companies. And just before we move on, do you have a kind of like top three things you'd like to see them do? Um, because it, it's been, you know, we're recording this. I'm not sure exactly when this will go out yet, but we're recording about actually time's moving very strangely at the moment. I think about five days since Donald Trump and Twitter had their big tete a tete and Twitter, um, removed well not removed but hid one of donald trump's tweets um is there a kind of you know the kind of burning three things that you deeply believe social media platforms should be doing right now 
So I think that they should be consistent around their policies. And so the frustrating thing about Facebook is that they have clear policies, which is if there is speech that is inciting violence, that they will take it down. And so I think the frustrating element, and we've seen some of the Facebook staff actually, you know, now hand in their notice or walk out, um, is you have to be consistent with the way that you apply your policies. So that's absolutely number one. Number two... I'm pleased to see in the last six months, we've seen more action from the platforms because around coronavirus, they've seen that there was imminent harm and therefore they have done things. So for example, Twitter adding this blue little label that says manipulated media or go here for more facts, I think is really interesting because they're not just putting a big red stamp on that says fake. They're saying, click on this link. And if you click on the link, you go to a Twitter moment and they give you, you know, 15 different tweets from different news organizations providing context. And I think that's so important around this rather than saying, well, one fact checker says it's false. That allows people to push back and say, well, who's fact checking that fact checker? But I think saying, you know, there's a complexity here and here's all the context. I think that's really important. But, and this is a big but, these platforms, when they roll out these measures at scale around the world, need to work with researchers so there can be a level of transparency about are there unintended consequences here that we can't see? How many people clicked on that link? Did they click on that link and then read? Or did they click on that link to then send it to a friend with a poop emoji to say, I don't, this is nonsense. I mean, there's so many different ways this could have worked and we don't, we simply don't know. And the thing at the moment is Twitter will write a report in six months time and I'm sure they'll tell us that this has worked, but essentially they're marking their own homework. So number two is we need all of these platforms when they take these um, steps, which is a good thing they're taking the steps, but they need to be working with independent researchers to do this kind of auditing of whether or not there's unintended consequences. And and the last thing I'd say is they just need more staff who actually work around the world. My frustration with a lot of this is they've scaled very, very quickly globally, but really it's very difficult to know whether the systems they're implementing in, in many different parts of the world with who do not speak major languages, how is this working? And many people I know who work in these spaces say, listen, you can email Facebook if you have a problem, Claire, but we can't get any answers if we have a problem. Yet their companies have huge impacts on our societies, but they don't understand how our society works and how information works. And so that's a third thing I would like them to say is we scaled quickly, we are hugely successful, but we have a responsibility to understand the cultural distinctions rather than thinking that one size fits all because that's not how the planet works. It's, uh, I think that's a really important last point because uh, we're making this series in partnership with uh, ODI's Digital Societies program and it's definitely something that um, through their work we've seen that particularly in languages which aren't widely spoken it's almost a black hole in terms of monitoring and accountability on social but the impacts are as real in different parts of the world as they are um, for us in the in the US or the UK so I think that's a really important point. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I just wanted to move on to ask quickly about TV because I feel like a lot of conversations around social media and journalism and news, the the nexus seems to be about writing and text and and facts and so on, whereas the future of communications feels increasingly post-text. Um, and yet TV feels kind of old because it's being challenged by Netflix and nobody watches everything at the same time anymore. But it is the it is the primary visual medium through which most of us would receive information. Um, do you think there are different things to watch out for in the misinformation or disinformation space on TV um, as opposed to the more widely understood things we should be watching for on social? Hmm. So are you talking about kind of video saying that you, it's about the moving image or are you specifically talking about TV kind of channels one to five type TV? I, mean, I think a bit both. I mean, obviously moving images all over the internet, but I, I think that there's there are still significant broadcast media who have an influential role to play in public discourse um, who perhaps uh, find themselves faced with a different set of challenges to print journalists or, um, or, on, right. or influencers online. Got you. Thank you for that clarification. So certainly a lot of the work that people do around misinformation, there is a disproportionate focus on text. That's partly because it's easier to study URLs and articles. It's easier to study tweets. Um, And so for that reason, there's a disproportionate focus on text when actually a lot of the work that we do is trying to get people to understand the power of visuals. So things like memes, obviously videos online, all of those sorts of things. But I do think that there is a disproportionate focus on social media and we forget what's happening both on television, but also radio. So we are, of course, much more trusting of things that we you know, use our remote control to watch. There's still this sense that there are gatekeepers, but certainly the role that television can play. I mean, if I'm in the US, but the role of Fox News on the right, but also MSNBC on the left, uh, which makes us Brits feel quite uncomfortable because we're not used to that in the television space. Uh, you know, when it comes to newsprint here, there is very little partisanship when it comes to the print um, space, which is interesting. But I mean, TV, whether you're either talking about domestic or you're talking about the role of, for example, Russia Today or Sputnik um, and, and the role that that plays. Uh, we're also seeing radio um, playing out. It's very hard to monitor and understanding how conspiracies are being played out on uh, radio waves. Again, is something I just, it's because it's so difficult to monitor. It doesn't get monitored. And I think we therefore forget it at our peril because audiences are pretty trusting of what they see on their screens. Um, and so it, it, it's definitely a, a kind of a black box when we do the kind of work that is about studying misinformation. It's interesting when you mention uh, how hard, I think that's an interesting point in and of itself, just given that, you know, I would I, I, I would share the view that we're moving away from text, I think, slowly but surely in how people pre- prefer to receive their information. Um, but the you mentioned radio as being a kind of um, really hard to monitor in the same way as I was going to ask you about closed messaging apps like WhatsApp, which is going to present a whole new challenge yeah. for monitoring misinformation. But radio, I guess, goes in the same category, which I hadn't thought about, um, and is much still much more widely used in most of the world. Um, 
So uh, yeah. have you got any recent examples of how radio is being used uh, for misinformation and disinformation purposes? Yeah. So for example, we did a training in Philadelphia back in November and there was a guy who came up to us to say, you know, I run a black radio station in Philadelphia and I spend all day having to debunk conspiracy theories for my callers uh, who have heard all sorts of things and they need help navigating this space. There's also, for example, I think it's Sputnik or maybe it's Russia Today, but is on the airways in Kansas. They've actually got access to the airways and they're, they're programming there. Um, there's all sorts of people who can, you know, because of community radio, um, pick up a microphone and say all sorts of things. So this isn't a criticism of radio. It's simply saying because it's easy to access, it's just so understudied that, you know, lots of people talk about things that they found on Twitter, but we don't talk about radio because it's so difficult to study. And, and I remember talking to a BBC journalist a couple of years ago who said, the reason I'm so worried about WhatsApp in India is it reminds me of the role of radio in Rwanda. And it's just a reminder that in so many ways, the same things are happening, which is you listen to the radio station that tells you what what you want to hear. You know, oral uh, mechanisms are, it's about trust. So for example, on WhatsApp, in many countries, the most problematic content is people leaving voice messages and voice memos for each other, particularly in countries that have lower levels of literacy. So I think, again, audio is not discussed, but actually our ears are incredibly trusting. <laughs> And so I'm really worried about the absence of, of um, radio, but also voice messages in closed messaging apps as mechanisms for pushing falsehoods and misinformation. You've planted the seed of an idea about a debate as to whether LBC belongs in the good guys or the bad guys column on this, because it certainly exposes you to a broad variety of opinions in a way that most radio stations wouldn't, but at the same time makes them particularly divisive and feeds off that divisiveness. But anyway, that's a little thought that just popped up in my head there about which which column it would belong in. Um, you, you mentioned the, the radio station in Philadelphia struggling with conspiracy theories uh, and or listeners believing conspiracy theories. And obviously around the coronavirus, the, the Bill Gates conspiracy theories grown. It's kind of interlinked with the anti-vaxxer conversations. Is there a risk that we're getting closer to the point where conspiracy theories, which have always had, you know, in some parts of the world, real world harm, could do uh, real world harm in parts of the world that have previously been kind of, I guess, almost inoculated against conspiracy theories? So certainly conspiracy theories are the things that keep me up at night at the moment. I mean, I've been doing this work for a number of years. And of course, you know, we'd monitor conspiracy theories, but they almost always were on the fringes. And whilst it was worth keeping track of them, I never really felt that they were that harmful. And then in the last three months, we've seen these conspiracies around the coronavirus move into the mainstream. And you've seen mums and aunties and high school friends sharing conspiracies in a way that I found really, really shocking. I think we have to understand the why of the conspiracy theory. And the why is right now people feel out of control. Their lives have been turned upside down and there is no explanation for this virus. There's no origin story. We still don't know where it came from. We still don't have a treatment. We don't know how long this is going to last. And so surprise, surprise, people are looking for a form of self-efficacy. And there's no, there's no other way of feeling like you have that self-efficacy other than these conspiracies that all of a sudden tell you that they've got this explanation for everything. And if you share it with your friends, you are doing something to help slow this down or to help inform people. And so that's why the conspiracies are doing so well. But they're doing particularly well in the US, Western Europe, Australia. You know, when I search for 5G, Bill Gates in other parts of the world, it just that's it's not completely true. Like the, the pandemic video did do somewhat OK in other places, but the cons the problem with conspiracy theories is definitely a kind of the privilege of unfortunately kind of white liberal democracies um 
when I say white liberal democracies, I mean that's there's kind of a problem here with where they, where these are being spread, um, and there are different communities who believe different conspiracies for different reasons. But um, it's I certainly think we don't know how to handle this. We don't know how to report on conspiracies. It's not easy to debunk, debunk a conspiracy. But we need to understand why they're powerful. They're very emotive. They want people to have a visceral reaction to them. And it's storytelling. It's powerful storytelling. And that's why it works. And I think, again, those of us in the quality information space like to, you know, oh, more facts, more information. Um, and what we, we need to learn from the conspiracy theorists, because they're being much more effective than we are right now. And who are the conspiracy theorists? Is it the kind of QAnon, 4chan US community? Is it like clever Russian propaganda merchants? Do we know how much about who they are? There are many different um, conspiracy types of conspiracy theorists. So if you take a subject, let's take anti-vax, for example, you have the whole horseshoe from, on one hand, people who talk about medical freedom and it's all about liberty and it's all about the government can't tell me what I inject my child with. And that's much more of a right-wing space. But it also is a lot of the wellness left-wing organic food mums groups who also are I couldn't possibly put that into my child's arm and so it's very difficult to say who are these people because the anti-vax conspiracies are different to the flat earth conspiracies are different to the chemtrails conspiracies but there is a lot of evidence that if you believe one conspiracy you're more likely to believe another and I think again we have to ask why people are believing this and I think for many people not just the coronavirus but they feel out of control when it comes to their lives and these very simple explanations give structure and explanation to people who feel out of control. So as much as it's easy to laugh at some of these conspiracies, if we laugh at them, we're not understanding why they're so potent and why people believe them. And that's what we have to get our heads around um, because they are working and they are growing and they are recruiting. Do I instinctively come at it from the wrong way? You know, if we think in, in, your, in the report I mentioned earlier on, you talk about agents of misinformation are there agents of conspiracy theories or are they more organic? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, I think there are certainly certain, I'm going to use the term bad actors, but people who recognise that they can use certain conspiracies to essentially recruit people into a community. And so, you know, you, you watch some of this stuff play out on 4chan. Um, it, it does feel like a radicalization, like the QAnon conspiracy, which is this idea that there's this, um, kind of connected to the deep state and that Donald Trump is going to take out all of these democratic politicians that have been controlling the world. I mean, in that space, I think there are some people strategically using these narratives to pull in people who do not, who feel out of control, feel like the government has let them down. I think they are preying on some of those people to bring them into their community. But I think there are other people that you could argue that these conspiracies are misinformation like they really do believe this stuff is true like if you spend any time in an anti-vax community you know that every post will start i've done my research like they really feel like they are the only ones who know the truth and they are going to give you that truth um but so that's to me that's not malicious that's really believing that information so again that's why these labels matter and i think yes conspiracy is a is a label that explains a lot of this stuff but we have to understand complexity within that label because they're very different people believing very different things and that sense of I've done my research is something that I saw somebody make a case that media literacy and improving media literacy, which feels like a really important part of dealing with disinformation and perhaps conspiracy theories as well, has its limits 
because actually quite a lot of people do spend quite a lot of time interrogating different forms of media to try and form their opinions, even people who end up with opinions that, Mill, you might not agree with or think are based in truth or fact. Is it, you know, is is that a fair argument to make that actually we sometimes assume that people aren't kind of critiquing or investigating the world around them? The problem is they're so mired in misinformation and disinformation they can't see the kind of wood for the trees. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I once heard Dana Boyd talk about doing a comparison of a media literacy page about us and a conspiracy site and that they looked identical, which is we're going to give you the tools to find the truth. And so, again, I think when we think about uh, conspiracy communities, we need to ask the why. Why are they taken by these stories? And what is it about their own sense of like feeling out of control that gets filled by these stories? So rather than saying, do your research, you know, if people are concerned about vaccines because of the role of big pharma, then there needs to be a way of taking that on and saying, we understand that there are concerns and, and let's talk about that. Let's require more transparency. Like if we're talking about the process of creating a vaccine for COVID, rather than saying, oh, you're an idiot for being anti-vax, we should be saying, no, you're very sensible. All of us should be demanding transparency around the process of creating this vaccine because if it's not safe, none of us should take it. And I think that's how we need to think a little bit about these conspiracy theory groups or conspiracy theorists is is why do they believe this and how can we talk to them about that as opposed to saying no you're an idiot just read this that's the absolute worst thing we could do and again the most effective conspiracy theorists are based on a kind of a kernel of truth so again you know in many communities of color very concerned about the vaccine because of the tuskegee experiment when black men in the south in the 1960s were tested upon by the government you know you have to recognise that. That's how conspiracy theories breed because there is some truth to this. And so I think, again, unpacking these conspiracies and understanding why they're so powerful for people who feel out of control is the key element to all of this. And I want to steer us in a slightly more practical direction because I know one of the things that First Draft does brilliantly is provide practical advice to people, to journalists looking to report in uh, creative and effective ways and to other organisations thinking about how to tackle some of these problems. Um, And ask what you think are some of the most useful tools for people involved in the business of communication um, when it comes to kind of getting your message across in today's information ecosystem. Um, So I'm thinking, for example, about things maybe like CrowdTangle, maybe things a bit more up to date than that. Are there any tools that you think are particularly helpful? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, is thinking about monitoring for this kind of information. You're only as successful as the keywords or the phrases that you use. So again, if you're monitoring anti-vax, you might want to also include the keyword medical freedom. Um, if you're looking, talking about gun rights in America, you would put hashtag 2A, which is shortcut for Second Amendment. So if you're doing that kind of monitoring, whether it's on places like TweetDeck or CrowdTangle, which allows you to monitor Facebook, Instagram and Reddit in one place. But caveat, although it's free, you have to get uh, you have to apply to get access from Facebook. And that doesn't always happen. But there's definitely best practices about being really effective in your monitoring and the way that you need to understand that, that, that keywords shift and change over time. And so you can't have one set of keywords that work and then the next month they you still believe they work because these things change um there's also best practices around verification and unfortunately whenever we do any of this work um the kind of digital forensics you need to do is more important than ever and that could be on a video or image or it could be on a social post who is it that did this in the first place and i often talk to journalists and say it's not just about people 
giving you false information. It's you thinking about the phrase manipulation. People are deliberately trying to manipulate you in the hope that you will report on this. And so watch out on, you know, the person that calls the front desk of the newsroom. Like, who are they? Who's your source? Have you actually, can you verify just because they came to you on Facebook Messenger that they are who they say they are? And of course, every journalist knows this, but when you suddenly think everybody who's trying to contact me or everything I find could be a deliberate attempt to manipulate me, that I think changes people's mindsets about verification. And then there's also best practice about how to report on this. How do we ensure that we don't give additional oxygen to these rumours and falsehoods? recognizing that just because we've seen it on Twitter, does that mean that my mum has seen it and that by reporting on it, you are therefore giving it more oxygen? And in the UK, the 5G conspiracy is an example of that. You know, there was suddenly a moment where lots of newsrooms were reporting on it and people were like, what's this 5G thing? Never heard of it. Putting 5G into Google and all of a sudden finding all these communities that are sharing conspiracies about 5G. So it's very, very tricky. And one of the main things we say to journalists is that they need to be working together all the time because the tactics are changing, the techniques are changing and keeping skills fresh is actually really hard. This is one of the most difficult times to be to be a journalist ever. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place because people are deliberately targeting them with false information, hoping that they will amplify it. And somebody that taught me a lot about doing communications roles told me that, you know, that a high form of, of unspoken praise is when you sent in a press release and the paper printed it almost intact. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that was the kind of, I guess that was maybe the 90s version. And is it, you know, do you think it's the case that people doing professional communications roles now need to be thinking about how to provide journalists with kind of content that is is cognizant of these challenges? You know, is it the case that doing a bit of monitoring on social and finding the stories that way could be as helpful as, as a really snappy press release was 10, 15 years ago? That's a good point. I mean, I definitely think there are lots of newsrooms that are struggling to do this work. And so I think whereas before there might have been a news peg, which is a clear way for why you're sending the press release, there is something interesting now about saying, you know, this is what the online chatter is saying. You know, here are a number of large Facebook groups that are discussing this. Um, you know, here, here's, you know, what's trending on Instagram. I don't know. It's, it's a tough call because I think a journalist would be like, Ugh, who are you to tell me what's going on? But I do think there's something in the journalism and communication space, which is still most people don't understand how the internet works. And that's why, you know, I often talk about newsrooms should have a meme editor. Like too often you see journalists running things and you're like, oh, don't say that. Um, and it's why you need a diverse newsroom, not just around race and ethnicity, but also age. <laughs> because as TikTok has become far more influential, like do you have people in your newsroom who understand TikTok? Um, yeah, all those things. I think that's probably a good point for us to end. Claire, thank you very much for your time and for all of your insights and for the work that you're doing. So I think it's really important. So it's been great to speak to you today. My pleasure. I really enjoy chatting. That's all for this week. This conversation left me thinking about how much transparency can be used as an antidote for conspiracy theory. Next time around, I'll be talking to Samuel Woolley. Samuel is the author of the book The Reality Game and an expert in computational propaganda. You'll find out what that is next week. But for now, if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please do leave us a review. My thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore B-S underscore robots. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> 